is often characterised as an illustration of the increasing narcissism of contemporary society, where to document and publish the everyday things in one's life is facilitated by these new technologies. Yet in many ways, these practices of cataloguing a life, staging memorials and responding to major events can be traced back centuries to the keeping of diaries and journals. There is a way, therefore, of approaching the practices of social media that acknowledges these traditions and asks that we understand some of what is produced with this in mind. Hello and welcome. I am John Lynch, Associate Professor of Film and Media at Karlstad University in Sweden. Today I talk to Professor Lee Humphreys of Cornell University about her book The Qualified Self, Social Media and the Accounting of Everyday Life. Welcome, Lee. Your book is titled The Qualified Self, Social Media and the Accounting of Everyday Life. Could you just say something about what this, this notion of the qualified self is for, for, for people? Yeah, um, so uh, the qualified self is uh, a way that we come to um, use media to uh, talk about ourselves and to create versions of ourselves. And it's a bit of a play, of course, on the quantified self, which is this concept um, which has really emerged with uh, through various forms of self-tracking with Fitbits and Apple Watches and smart devices, which count things for us that we really um, couldn't necessarily count or keep track of in our everyday lives. And so, you know, whether it be steps or heartbeats or whatnot. Um, and, and yet, and so we use that sort of data to come to understand ourselves better. And so what I argue that the qualified self is, are the non-quantifiable ways that we document our lives and our experiences so that we can come to understand ourselves as well as each other better. I think it's fair to say most media commentators, not all by any means, um, when we come to things like social media and how this has impacted on relationships between people, um, it, it's often portrayed in, in quite pessimistic terms um, that there's been a, a sort of degrading of the life world and relationships in different ways you seem to is it fair to say you, you take a different view to that could you say something about that yeah um I think that's a, a definitely a way that I think about things I mean I just I, I will admit that personally I am an optimist I have always been a, a glass half full kind of person it's just who I am um uh, that said when it comes to doing research, you know, I think it's important to think about the potential um, uh, benefits as well as detriments of media. And media have always, um, I have a background in, in media studies and communication uh, research. And so, you know, whether it be comic books or film or television 
you name it, it was going to ruin our children <laughs> and our society, or it was going to save us, right? So there's kind of two sides of how I think media has often been portrayed in public discourse. And of course, social media and mobile phones are no different. And so one of the things that I have always been really interested in is, you know, if this is ostensibly so bad for us, why do we do it? <laughs> what do we get out of it? What comes from it? And um, a lot of the research at the time around social media had been focusing on the impacts of social media, um, at particularly uh, momentous events. So we can think about the 2009 uh protests and revolution in Iran, which I think really put Twitter in kind of into public discourse as an impactful social media. Um, and I was just interested in, I guess, what happens before and after these events? What happens before and after Eurovision when people, you know, are just on their phones watching TV or, you know, going to the grocery store or, you know, just using social media in a much more everyday quotidian way. And so that's what led me to this research. And the other aspect of that is, you know, for me, I, I just kept wanting to understand because I started studying Twitter in about 2007. And at the time, uh, people were like, what on earth is this thing? Why would anyone use it? Um, and I must admit, I thought the same thing. And so um, I started researching it. And at the time, Twitter was actually, this shows you how, how old I am, I guess, but uh, it was referred to as a microblog at the time because it was a big it was a big deal when it came out. and. Um, and so, it, I mean, one of the really interesting things about Twitter from my perspective as a mobile scholar as well is that it has always been cross-platform. So it has always been, you could use it through SMS, you could use it through the web. Um, and so that has always been interesting to me. But um, in doing the research on Twitter, I started, you know, because I was approaching it as a blog, as microblog, and so I started looking at um, blogging literature, and blogging literature very much uh, tried to situate blogging as journaling. And so journaling, um, if you look back at uh, sort of the history of journaling, and in particular, um, feminist historians work around um, uh, journaling and journaling practices, uh, it just was remarkable to me to look at that literature and to see the similarities between feminist journaling scholarship and social media <laughs> in, in a couple of different ways. So one, in the way that <clears throat> uh, people don't just talk about themselves, so um, women historically were much more likely to talk about other people in their diaries or to write about other people and not just themselves. Um, uh, I think um, men's diaries, at least in North America at that time, were much more likely to talk about themselves and center themselves in the stories than women. Um, and so that to me was an interesting element of thinking about the social aspects of journaling. And then the other really important aspect were the practices that surrounded sharing journals. So I had always thought a journal or a diary was 
something that you, you know, it's pink and it's fuzzy and it has a lock on it and you pour your innermost, you know, secrets and desires into. And in fact, that's a pretty 20th century notion of what journaling is. Um, and in fact, if you look back in the longer history of journaling, um, it, uh, people would share their journals. They would send them back and forth with each other. They, people would come over and they'd sit down and they'd go through their journal together. Um, and that to me was incredibly surprising, um, but also a very common way, uh, a very helpful way to think about Twitter, um, that what people were doing historically were to say, oh, look, yes, and at this point, you know, that's when uh, John visited, and that's when Mr. Smith got married, and that's when, and now those were the kinds of things that they would document in their journals and then share as a way of maintaining kin and social relations, or to share your life experiences. And so that to me was, I guess, maybe the aha moment <laughs> in thinking about why people talk about themselves on social media. It's not necessarily because they're narcissistic, which I think had, um, was, you would think that if you are assuming that Twitter is like a newspaper or like broadcast media where there's finite space and the, there's an important social function when it comes to disseminating information to a public or to citizens. Um, but when I talk to my mom on the phone and I say, mom, what did you make for dinner last night? And she tells me she made her pot roast. And I'm like, oh, love your pot roast. You know, um, it's, it's not because it's a news information. It's because I love my mother. And by knowing these intimate details, we, it reinforces our social bond. And if we think that social media is more like talk rather than news, it helps us to reframe what the behaviors mean and why people are doing them. Yes, I think it. I think it's great, very important as you you know as you've described to to, to look at those kind of precursors and all the the parameters of of, of all of um, uh, how that's worked in the past and things. And I think I think that it's it's great to to see that you know in a book about sort of new media to really focus on that historical detail which i think is is great i suppose there's two questions that would come to my mind from 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 what you say really one is um well i suppose three things one is it the case that a fairly uh, i think again is very persuasive that uh, the way that that women wrote journals was uh, you know was was defined in a certain way i mean reading the book what struck me was perhaps Perhaps, perhaps the class parameters of that was that a particular you know I mean certainly my grandmother would have never written a journal and generations back through my family uh, in kind of rural Ireland that wouldn't have been the practice so you know there is a certain I think a certain aspect of it in that sense the, and then and flowing from that I suppose is two things really one is although people may have written in that way did they just write in a fairly uniform way? I mean, so, you know, the names change and the places change and the dinners change, but essentially did it, was it, so, so then it's a question really about, well, what kind of information was being um, uh, communicated? And as you say, it's, a, it's an act of communication. It's written to be read in that way. Uh, so could, could you say something about some of, some of those things? Because I think they also translate because, you know, 
in terms of something like Twitter or even Facebook, of course, often what people will say is, oh, the utter banality of it. And, you know, what you argue, I think, very well is this, this sort of notion of ordinariness. So just something about that, I kind of think, would be useful. Yeah. Um, so let me take the first question about class parameters. So um, I think, I mean, based on my understanding of um, historical journaling, um, it was really in the ninth, well, so the earliest of journals were, of course, religious journals. And, um, and here it was really uh, the idea um, was to document and and by writing things down, it's it's fascinating how this is now seen in a lot of persuasive computing. But the idea was that when you write things down and when you are consciously paying attention to your own piety, you in fact become more pious, right? So the idea was to write it in a way that you are are you know writing about things you've done poorly, things you've, you know, primarily things you've done poorly and that you want to work on. And that by writing it, it reinforces as a kind of um, a disciplining act, right, to become more pious. So those are some of the, the earliest diaries. Um, they did tend to be more, um, <clears throat> uh, more likely done, written by men because of literacy rates, et cetera. In the US in the 20th or in the 19th century, literacy rates, um, particularly at the middle to end of the 20th or 19th century, um, were upwards for women of um, 60 to 70%. So uh, they, and then upwards to 80% in the late 19th century. So we do see a big rise in literacy rates and the journaling were really, um, meant as a way of keeping track of the household, right? So we can think about um, commonplace books and other kinds of things um, and uh, sort of printed materials that were um, meant to, uh, you know, both document uh, things that you were in encountering. And this even goes into the early 20th century with scrapbooks. And, and so, I think uh, as we think about class, I think that's certainly part of it. I mean, the other thing is, of course, race. This is a very, um, and this is, you know, it's one of those things like, and I'm sure other authors have felt this, but like, once you write a book, you're like, oh, why didn't I write this as part of it? But I don't um, necessarily really name the whiteness in my book as much as I wish I, um, in retrospect, had. And that sort of white middle class, um, uh, kind of um, context. Uh, that said, I mean, one of it's one of the big sources for me in thinking about this book. Uh, so travel diaries were another important area for um, things. But the other thing had to do with um, actually farming. So I grew up on a farm, um, and uh, and so you know I came across this journal. Uh, and it was, it, to be fair, it was, an, it was from, I think, 1926. So it was um, much more modern, but um, it was written by a farmer. And the way I knew is because uh, they always tracked the weather 
every day they wrote about what the weather was. And then in, you know, in June, at the bottom of the, each corner, they wrote one and a half loads, two loads, one loads. And so here, what they're talking about is hay <laughs> um, and or straw. And so um, we're not talking about big data, right? One, two, one and a half, right? But what these journals allowed people to do were to keep track of information over time so that they could see larger trends in weather and productivity in other kinds of um, aspects related to their to their work and livelihood. Um, and again, I think we see that kind of aspect with social media where big data and as we think about what big data, is and what it allows us to do, it's very often about aggregating information over time. And that is exactly what these diarists were doing, is that they were aggregating information over time to be able to see larger trends. Um, and so it's not necessarily unique to big data, this practice of trying to understand the world through these traces. Um, but there, you know, there are some important differences between a, a farmer doing it and, of course, Google doing it, right? I think, again, uh, it's very interesting the way that you um, really push to the forefront what you call the uh, ordinariness of the information. Um, and I think that, I, I, again, I think that's a real sort of interesting area. You say, I think there is always the being ordinary, but there is also the becoming ordinary. What, why was that an important um, idea? I mean, in, in the context of farms and, and other things, I mean, the information is not specialized as such, but, you know, it, it has a particular audience in that way. But again, I think you seem to want to recognize the value of what perhaps is often ignored in that way. What is it about that quality of the work that you, the writing that you think is important? Great question. I think, you know, one of the things for me um, has to do, you know, yeah, the ordinariness, I just, part of it is we spend so much time in the ordinary, right? We spend a lot of time waiting, sitting, doing, you know, making breakfast, cleaning dishes. I don't know. We just, there's a, so much time, even if you think about something extraordinary, which now feels even more extraordinary than it used to, but travel, right? Um, travel, there's a lot of waiting in travel, right? There's a, and my colleague, Jason Foreman has a wonderful book on this, but there's, and those kinds of things are, are meaningful in different ways. Um, and that it's only the momentous that kind of pops in occasionally, the holiday, the trip, the, um, and yet I think the, the routine, the, um, the ordinariness, the everyday, um, those have a lot of meaning in our intimate relationships. And I think for me, you know, I think COVID has really brought this home when the only people I see are my immediate family, you know, in person um, and, and we're spending so much more time at home and, you know, all of these kinds of things that have really just, this is, this is what we can do and this is where we're at. And, and I think 
the ordinary, yeah, reveals our basic values of spending time with family, eating, health, you know, these kinds of um, attributes of our, of our lives that so often what we document are the extraordinary and we don't always document the everyday in the same way. Um, and yet the everyday changes too, right? Slowly over time, or sometimes, you know, um, to the, the question of becoming ordinary, I've, so part of what I've been doing is for the past 20 years or so is studying mobile phones and mobile phones, you know, when I first started studying them were not ordinary at all. They were incredibly disruptive. They were incredibly expensive. I remember I had to get a credit check to be able to get my first mobile phone, you know, um, they were incredibly exciting um they were you know they represented a lot um but they were not ordinary at all and yet today you know i probably you know i walk around my house with my phone in my hand or in my pocket i don't leave my house without my phone i don't like it's just almost an appendage in many ways and so it has become ordinary and so for me studying new communication technologies I'm always interested in how they become ordinary, how what seemingly is incredibly disruptive and crazy new eventually fades into the background. Yes, I think that, the, the, as you say, the, the issue of, 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 of intimacy, and I think it goes to the heart of the idea of, of how we build bonds with each other and the importance of that. Again, I think that's a very kind of strong sort of idea that's easy to to miss in that sense. Um, so I, I think that's that's good. I suppose, I mean, you're talking about the mobile phone. Um, uh, yeah, and I certainly shared that experience of the, the changing, uh, changing sort of status of them and how they're used. Um, the fears around them that <laughs> the fear today is now losing the phone, whereas before the fear was something else. But again, it goes, I think, again, it goes to the heart of some of the concerns around social media is that you could describe the way in which these things have infiltrated our lives <laughs> you know they've they've entered the in the, the the personal space they occupy now well as you say kind of intimate spaces in that sense um and we have to be clear of course they are they are driven uh by designs of addiction and um uh, you know, um, expanding in, in every way to, to try and engage us and, and, and kind of attention economy in that way. I mean, do you, do you see that there is something, that there is a valid concern in that way that actually, and I mean, do you, for instance, think that we should control children's access to these things and you know, do, do you have to have a level of maturity before you can engage? Yeah, I have lots of thoughts on these kinds of things, because while I am optimistic about individual people's use of them, I would say I am rather pessimistic about the um, uh, commodification and capitalization of these platforms. So one of the reasons that I wrote the book to 
sort of draw out these historical parallels was to try to understand what is really new about social media. Um, because if you only compare it to 20th century broadcast television, it feels very revolutionary. And so when you compare it to older, um, uh, maybe analog forms of media, which, you know, even within media studies, we really don't think, you know, media studies is very much, they don't think about journals as media, right? Um, so I'm trying to expand the definition there. Um, which I think the mobile phone, you know, thinking of it as media, it's very easy to see how, of course, the phone is media and journals are media and letters are media. Anyways, um, but the, the big difference between, I used to think before the study that the difference was that it's now um, corporate actors are playing a bigger role in people documenting their lives and sharing it with others. And it turns out that's not entirely true, <laughs> um, <clears throat> that uh, there has always been, you know, paper production and journalists. Some of the earliest baby books were actually put out, um, at least in the US, by insurance companies, encouraging parents to keep track of their children's vaccinations in the early 20th century. Um, and so clearly there's a corporate angle on that, right? So that's not new, but what's new is access to that data, as well as how these companies make money. So the, the clearest comparison that I make is, um, <clears throat> is with Kodak in the United States. So Kodak is a major um, uh, camera film company that emerged in the late 19th century. And in the early 20th century, they introduced um, probably at least one of the first, if not um, the most successful uh, amateur cameras. So these were cameras that people could buy. They could buy the film. Um, they could take pictures. Primarily they had to be outside because that was where the good light was. Um, and then they would send the cameras um, back to Kodak. Kodak would take the, the film out. They would create prints for you and then send you send it back to you. And so if we think about that comparison, Kodak had access to pretty much almost every photo that was taken by amateur photographers in the early 20th century, right? They had access to all of that data. If we think of it in the, you know, uh, social media way, right? They had access to all of that personal data. The way they made their money was by selling cameras, selling uh, film, and printing photos. They did not take those photos, try to analyze them, and then with your film, you got advertisements, right? That's not how they worked. They worked by selling products and services. Um, what we see in social media today is that they have very much followed 20th century broadcast business models, which is you don't really pay for media content, you pay by watching advertisements. And so this is, this is how social media are, um, are making money, it's primarily through advertising. And so that is a really important distinction between earlier 20th century companies that really made money off of people creating media um, 
than today. And there are a number of implications. So first of all, um, because they have not just my data today, they don't just have my data, but they have my neighbor's data, my husband's data, the data of my neighborhood, of my employer, of my, you know, um, it allows them to see things um, in the data that I can't even over time. Um, so that's an important thing. The other thing is I don't have uh, control of my traces like I used to. So I, you know, I have my baby book, I have my husband's baby book, I have my two kids' baby books, which are sitting right here. Um, you know, and my children, I've posted photos of my children online and um, and now they're there, right? And, you know, I post them because I'm, you know, when they were born, I wanted to share that news. And so it becomes this really, you know, just like people would post baby announcements in the newspaper, right? You want to share that information with your community and they want that information, right? We want to celebrate, be able to celebrate together. So it's really interesting now to think that, of course, Facebook has that data, has that photo, um, Luckily, she looks pretty different, so facial recognition won't be able to point out that it's still her in 20 years, but it becomes this really interesting thing about longer term implications, as well as, you know, what happens with the platform, uh, if it were to fold, if it were to, um, for legislation reasons, um, be put under, I mean, there's a number of different things, then all of my, my photos, which are now, or would be gone, right, like, how do I, think about these kinds of things. So um, I guess I'm, I, I think it's important that, because one of the things that I think happens is in public discourse is people are considered narcissistic for posting photos all the time about themselves, their experiences. Um, and we don't think about how they are continually asked to post photos, continually asked to, um, to do these kinds of things. And it's, it's for a particular reason, and it is um, not for the public good, but it is for, um, I guess, the bottom line. Let's let's look at that question of um, of, of what you describe um, and has been described as a sort of narcissism, because I think that's a, again a very important uh, aspect of this, and I I think there's also a lot in that which can easily just be kind of swept away by this this word you know narcissism is in something inherently bad and you know uh, uh, but I mean on another level um, I mean I'm thinking of going back to, to Freud and I think about other theorists that, that uh, I, I read people like Bernard Stiegel or whatever they talk very much about the importance of narcissism which is the sort of the development of a um, a kind of stable and coherent subjectivity before you can, you know, in, in that sense, narcissism is understood as the important phase to develop yourself, and then you're able to develop in relation to others. So I'm certainly not coming from this from the from the point of view of, you know, this is narcissists just putting pictures of themselves up and things like this. But at the same time, of course, it it is, I mean, as you say, that the the problem in one sense is that this material is seized by the machine which then does something else with it in that sense um and we you know 
as our children grow up, we want them to have a good sense of themselves and we want them to be confident in who they are and all sorts of it. And, that, you know, and part of that is that they see that you are proud of them and posting photos can be a way of doing so. And all of that, I think he's very human and, and we're fundamentally social. Um, for, the problem for many people is that what social media is doing is destroying, and I think they would use that word, destroying sociality. I mean, do you think that there is, do you think that things like social media and if you say, for instance, something like Facebook, is it something that, that we should try and shape more, at, you know, to take away from whether it's regulation or whatever should, it, 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 there's no question it is a form of sociality. Should we seek to, to control it more somehow um, to move it away from those commodification values and so on? Or is this, or does it function basically quite well? Do you think, in terms of things today, um, you know, in, in that sense, people would say, well, it has the possibility, it has the potential, and others would say, well, it actually does. It's not perfect, you no, know, but it does a pretty good job. I mean, what do you think in relation to that kind of spectrum? To me, there's a couple of different aspects to that. So one has to do with this question of whether or not, um, to, the, to the point of whether it's destroying sociality, right? I think um, with all media, as with, I guess, most things, um, everything is best in moderation. Uh, I don't think, I think there are, are ways and experiences um, and there's evidence of this, of it really replacing, you know, fundamental uh, social interactions. Um, there's evidence of, of social media, you know, um, hurting uh, intimate relationships. There's evidence, right? Um, so I don't want to say that, it, that there aren't negatives. Um, one of the biggest negatives that I've seen um, has to do actually with um, uh, the normative elements that I think become really highlighted on social media. So um, for example, baby photos and things like that, you're seeing baby photos of other people. Um, if you are someone who's you know, in your fourth round of IVF, um, in vitro fertilization, and you're struggling to have a child, seeing all those photos is, is really traumatic, right? Um, uh, if you on, you know, Mother's Day is in a couple of weeks here in the U.S., and if you've recently lost a mother, it is ho really horrible to have to see all of these photos. Happy Mother's Day, I love you, you know. Um, and I think that normative element is, is um, significantly stronger because you're seeing more photos, there's greater visibility of these kinds of things on social media today than I think historically happened. And so um, I think that can have really negative repercussions um, in, in terms of uh, recognizing difference, diversity, et cetera. That said, you know, there's also tremendous IVF support groups right, that are available through private groups on Facebook as well, where, where people can share really challenging experiences. So it's not to say that it's all good or it's all bad, um, but to, to sort of recognize and be sensitive to where these, where these issues might arise. In terms of the role of Facebook or Google, um, I think 
you know, part of the challenge of these companies is um, this distinction between a public mission and a private uh, enterprise. And, you know, within journalism, for instance, we have always sort of thought about broadcast television as a public good, right? It's using broadcast airwaves. Um, the internet is not thought of as necessary. I mean, we're getting there at least in the US, but we're really not there. It is, it's considered a technology. It's not considered a public utility yet. Hopefully we'll get there, but it's not. And so it's not seen as something. And so it's regulated very differently, unfortunately. Hopefully COVID, if anything, has helped drive home how it really is a, a public utility and how reliant we are on it for to be a citizen, to be a student, to, you know, um, to just really live in, in this world today. Um, and that if we don't regulate it, uh, we are going to be leaving people behind. And that is, um, that's inhumane and we can't do that. And so I think we do need much greater regulation around these kinds of issues. And in terms of the platforms themselves, I mean, Facebook is very quick to say, oh, we're just, you know, a technology company, right? Like, and then, you know, oh, we're not gonna regulate speech, right? That's a big issue here in the US. And, um, you know, I think Europe luckily has been a little bit um, more ahead of the US, certainly in terms of privacy regulations and certainly in terms of a number of different aspects when it comes to these large corporate players. And I think um, the US hopefully will be catching up soon. It's interesting you mentioned, uh, you, as you say, you talked about Kodak and photography, which I think, again, is a wonderful sort of section of the book and uh, grounds very well the idea of circulation of images and, and things like that, which is good. I was very struck um, by the way in which you talk about remembrancing. I mean, and, the, and the, you know, that's a, that's a chapter in your book, so you, you, you cover many things, but I thought the section around what what struck me of, of of what you might call mourning and the use of social media in that way, and you know perhaps all families have different tragedies in different ways, but you know we're all personally affected in certain ways. But the the I thought that was that that drew attention to actually something quite powerful, really, in that you know this. The way in which that the way in which these different platforms, whether that's YouTube or Facebook, and other, you know, they it's quite diverse in that way, but seemed to me to to to, to point to something very, um, how can I say? Well, I mean, kind of productive in a way. It you know, it, it was or positive, however you however, however you might say. Could you just say something about that side of things in in that regard? Yeah, so, so in the book, I, I talk about the ways that people, um, and really the rituals that people have around um, when, they've, when they've lost a loved one. Um, and I talk about the, the um, concept, again, from the 19th century of uh, memorial photos or death photos. So these were photos that would be taken um, often, uh, again, when infant mortality was really high, uh, um, sometimes the only photo you would have of a, of a child would be after 
the child had died. And, um, and so, and, and sometimes the family would pose with the child, uh, you know, in a bassinet or in um, a, a, a small coffin and, um, or they'd be holding the child. And so uh, I was really struck by these photos. Um, and, and today, uh, you know, I started doing um, research uh, on, on this today because, um, you know, at, at least in the US, one in, one in thir uh, about almost 20% of pregnancies will either end in a, a miscarriage or a stillbirth. And, and yet it's an incredibly, it's still an incredibly taboo topic. And, and one of the things that we've seen um, on the clinical side is that the standard practice of care for parents, right, who, who, who lose a child um, in birth or, or um, before birth or what they call perinatal um, within the, the first um, sort of gestation of, I think, 36 to, to 42 weeks. Um, is uh, is to offer photography services to parents um, with the children because it can be if you, for instance, have been preparing for something for nine months and then you come home without a baby, it can be incredibly, I mean, it's gonna be traumatic anyways, but the photos actually um, can really help. And these photos um, are, are typically beautiful portrait uh, photos. And um, they become, they're often black and white. You would often not know, like it doesn't, it doesn't look like death, right? The, the photos are, are really um, just beautiful. And, and then people can share these photos um, online with their communities. And again, this is a really important way to, to recognize and to think about how we come to terms with tragic loss in our lives. Um, and so this is something that, you know, I think uh, social media can, can help with the sharing uh, among grieving communities. Because again, the, the loss of a child is never just the loss for parents, it's the loss for the whole community, I think. And so um, in that regard, the sharing uh, can be really helpful in, um, in, in, in coming to terms and to, in both recognizing, acknowledging, and then um, in collective grieving. And so we do, we do see that uh, practice re-emerging, re I think, in the last 15 to 20 years. Thinking now sort of, sort of final thoughts of, uh, about some of these issues, um, how much have we needed to become sort of curators of our own lives, as, as I think you make reference to or the, the sort of curatorial aspect of this. Again, is this something that is really just changing or is this, because again, much of the, well, some of the concern around this is the, the pressure to, 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 to present. I mean, whilst you may, whilst a, a, a typical bourgeois family of the 19th century may have had a portrait photo, every few years or something now the the demand even from social media you know you haven't updated for six hours you know send it you know <laughs> or whatever it may be uh, i mean i'm not I'm, I'm personally not 
have much presence on social media, but you know that that side of things. So again, I think what what comes across well is that on the one hand, it, having the sense of of curating your own life can be quite a a positive thing, you know, and this people taking control and and having a sense of self-authoring, which I think is a a good way. But then on the other hand, um, there is a sense of, are you keeping up, fear of missing out, um, perhaps not feeling you conform to what is understood as, I don't know, attractive, interesting, you know, as you, as again, as you make, it's, it's nice that you, you have lots of personal touches within the book, but, you know, there are certain places where it's good to flag up where you've been and others, you know, you don't mention or there's music to that indicates your, you know, your, your intellectual background, but then there's, there's TV shows you don't want to mention too much. So how much is that idea today really one which is becoming oppressive or should we still hold on to something of that? Yeah, I think, um, so I, I guess I'll start with a historical anecdote, which is, well, not anecdote, but um, story, which is in the late 19th century, speaking of portraits and whatnot, I'm picturing them in, you know, in the parlor with the portrait on the wall, um, uh, parents would read their children's diaries aloud to the household at the end of the day. And so I keep thinking about that what children would write in that diary um, and what they perhaps might not write in that diary. And I think about the pressures today to perform um, certain ways, to, to look certain ways. I also think about the pressures today to quote, to really be authentic, to be yourself, to be real, to show the backstage, you know, um, which I think there's a lot of uh, pressure to do that as well. You know, I think in terms of curation, there's this wonderful book called Writing with Scissors by Gruber Garvey, who um, talks about the, the ways that we have for a long time curated our lives with other people's ideas and texts and um, and yet our own combination of them is what is unique to us. And she argues as part of these scrapbooks that they didn't necessarily represent the, um, the author's actual lives, their day-to-day -day necessarily. In some cases they did, but not always. But there was this idea that even if people are writing or curating what they hope to be, what they wish they could be, that there's still something authentic in that. And it's not to say that it's not influenced by other actors or um, uh, maybe celebrities or corporate actors, right? Um, but even the aspirations can be um, helpful insights into the individual and what they, what they think they should be or what they really do hope to be. Um, and so I guess, you know, perhaps that's my glass half full kind of answer to that question is, you know, um, as I look at my, my daughter's Pinterest board, for example, and she has all of these beautiful images. I mean, they're gorgeous, right? And she's like, mommy, I wanna do that with my room. 
I'm like, I can't do that. <laughs> like, let's go to Target and see what we can find, you know, but like, um, but still that aspiration of what she likes and what she, you know, would dream of someday. I mean, I don't know. When I was a kid, I would go through the catalogs and magazines that my mom got and I would look at all the beautiful pictures and I'd be like, okay, what, which one, if I could have anything, what would I want? I would want that one, right? And I would want that one. And, you know, I mean, we've known for a long time that magazines and catalogs are all about crafting consumers, right? And it's not that surprising that that's happening with social media today, right? That we're crafting consumers, but it's still enjoyable. I mean, it's still pleasurable in many ways to be looking at these beautiful photos and to be imagining things and to think about things. And I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll see how it works out, but I don't, um, I'm, I'm, I don't, I, yeah, <laughs> I think I'll stop there on that one. <laughs> Yes, I think there's something very interesting, as you say, about idea of imagination and creativity and, and, and yeah, that sort of self-authoring, the self-creation and, and things. And, uh, yeah, um, of course, it's, uh, it has both possibilities, but also, you know, concerns in, in different ways. And I think, it, you know, you capture that well. Well, listen, thank you very much for discussing all of that. It was great to to read the work. And as I say, I think it's, it's it, from my point of view, as a as sort of scholar in, in media studies, it's really good to to, to read the substance of, of, of history and what people did with media in the past and things like this. And I think that, that that's a really important area to, um, to, to, to work with and, uh, and, and, and get a sense of, of where we are today and what we might uh, think about in that regard. So again, thank you very much for your time. Um, thank you. John, thank you. It's been a pleasure.